Mr. Linden. Hi, Ms. Ratledge. How are you? And, and hello to everyone listening. Welcome to Historically Speaking, where we explore the history behind the topics in this week's news. And uh, this week, correct me if I've misunderstood, um, but we're going to be talking all about board games and betrayal because we are talking about monopolies and <laughs> antitrust measures, right? That's exactly right, Mr. Linden. I love that game Monopoly. Many, many hours of childhood sitting around playing that game. So let's talk about it. Yeah, it's my history. Absolutely. No, so we're, so we're going to be talking about the other kind of monopolies and the other kind of antitrust because we trust each other very much here. So, uh, what, why did you uh, want to talk about this topic this week? You, uh, you proposed this one. Yeah, well, I thought it was really fascinating. So, for all of you listeners that suggested other fabulous topics, don't worry, we will get to them soon. But we're trying to keep this podcast to things that are happening in the news right now. And as you might have heard, the Department of Justice, the Federal Department of Justice, has introduced a antitrust or also called like an anti-monopoly case against Google, 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 right? Because as we all know, Google is a verb. And that is a problem when a business becomes a verb, right? It is, it is too big for its breaches, as the Department of Justice has said. And so I thought it would be a really interesting um, topic to kind of unpack from a historical perspective because there's a lot in the case that's interesting, but more importantly, there's a lot kind of historically that's led us to this, this that I thought we could talk about. Yeah, and, and this really brings us back to the Gilded Era, right, in American history, when we're talking about antitrust history in the U.S. And this is that time period, you know, after Reconstruction and roughly, you know, before World War One, you know, but really especially before the, the turn of the century when we have this unprecedented growth in corporate America, corporate structures and, and industry is booming. And we have for the first time these major corporations gobbling up all of their competitors and getting big enough that they're sort of squelching any real competition. And we started to realize that maybe this might be a problem both for the American economy uh, and also for uh, the experience of workers, because a lot of these folks, you know, your John D. Rockefellers, who we're going to talk about later, J.P. Morgan, you know, Andrew Carnegie, which I recently learned is supposed to be pronounced Carnegie and not Carnegie, um, if you are uh, hmm. interested. Uh, I guess it's a Scottish thing. The Mr. Linden, the linguist. Yes. Always inserting. Yes. Always Thank concerned about the, the pedantic, the most pedantic thing I could be concerned about. <laughs> um, but these folks uh, were both integrating every part of the supply chain, um, but they were also uh, really making their workers live their jobs, right? You know, building towns and things like that where their workers would live. They would pay them in, in some cases in the credits to buy stuff from their little town store rather than real money. And the US governmental system was like, maybe there's something bad here. Maybe this isn't just all positive, right? So we, mm -hmm. we end up with a generation of, of folks who, who set out to sort of expose this, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of the things I always find so fascinating about the Gilded Age particularly and monopolies is it's really these enormous industries, things that 
you know, that we're not talking about like a bunch of bread makers being in a monopoly, right? Or a bread maker being a monopoly, right? We're talking about railroads, yeah. we're talking about oil. This is big money, big, big money. Steel, like the production of steel, how enormous that these companies become and their ability to what is called vertically integrate. In other words, they buy up everything, every part of the supply chain so that all all arrows point towards them, in other words, right? And famously, Teddy Roosevelt was really, really anti this because he felt like it was really bad for small business and for the consumer. Yeah, right. And so just to give an example of that vertical integration, let's say I'm making steel, you would buy up all the mines and then you would buy up the, the trains that transport the ore from the mines to the factory. And then you have the factory and you buy the outlets that sell the steel to all the everywhere. So it's, it's every part of that vertical supply chain you're integrating. And, you know, Teddy Roosevelt it was a great example of a, a trust buster, right? Someone who ends up breaking up some of these big corporations. But I, I wanted to draw our attention to, to one of my favorite figures in, in certainly Gilded Era history and maybe all of American history, who's sort of like, I kind of think of her as like, a journalistic Batman. So this person's name is Ida Tarbell, right? And uh, she grows up in Western Pennsylvania to a father who runs a small, like, local oil refinery, a mom-and-pop oil refinery, which is not something we think about often today. The, the, some people would say Robert Barron, the, the, the leader of Standard Oil, comes into the area and basically... Uh, makes the deal secretly with all the railroad companies to get cheaper rates on transporting oil all around on the on the railroads. And basically, as a result of that, is able to outcompete everyone in the area in terms of pricing of their products. So he basically goes to all these local oil makers and says, hey, I'm going to drive you out of business or you can just sell your stuff to me now. And he manages to eliminate uh, 22 out of his 26 competitors in the region by doing this. He's going to go on to do this in basically every major, major city on the East Coast. But he starts in the sort of Cleveland-Pittsburgh area. But Ida, Ida Tarbell's dad is one of the ones who doesn't sell their refinery to Rockefeller, but it's a struggle for them. And so Ida Tarbell grows up and basically is like, you know, you ruined my family, John D. Rockefeller, and I'm going to hunt you until the end of time. And so she becomes a journalist and does this 19, 19 chapter, 19 edition expose of Standard Oil, where she talks to a whole bunch of the people who were very important in the company who thought she was writing this big complimentary piece about them. And she exposes all the insider dealing they were doing, you know, the the buddy-buddy contracts that they had gotten with the locomotive companies. Um, why did I say locomotive instead of train? I don't know. It just felt right. She does this huge expose that leads to Standard Oil being broken up, right, uh, into companies that we have today, like Chevron and ExxonMobil, which were considered to be these, like, baby versions compared to Standard Oil. So if you can imagine how large ExxonMobil is now, mm -hmm. just imagine how big Standard Oil was then. But she received, like, real threats 
um, when she was doing this. And, you know, John D. Rockefeller always called her that poisonous woman um, because he was so mad at her. But she was not only, you know, an amazing researcher and an amazing writer, but really genuinely a very brave person to take on uh, Rockefeller in the way she did. Yeah, yeah. No, she's um, she's also notably one of the only, I think she's actually the only female that was part of what Teddy Roosevelt famously coined, the muckrakers, who were this group of journalists, yeah. investigative journalists at that time, who would rake the muck, right? All the, the unsalty the sultry things of, of, you know, the underbelly of society and, and expose it. And they did things like, you know, expose what was going on in the meat packing plants and in the steel industry and like all this terrible stuff. And so, yeah, Ida Tardabelle is pretty, well, she's, she's pretty awesome. She's like the bomb in my opinion, because she's also, also a female journalist. So. Um, yeah. She's one of the two best Idas of the Gilded Era. There are two uh, great yeah. Idas of the Gilded Era her, and Ida B. Wells. Yeah. So. Ida B. Wells, yes, you're right. Ida B. Wells, but she's late. She's later. Yeah. This is interesting because it kind of relates to some of the things that they're accusing Google of, which is that Google is paying, right, paying people to make its product the default search engine on its on phones and things like that. And thus it is using its money just the same way that, you know, Standard Oil did or some of these other companies that were broken up, using its money and its clout to get the things that it wants and thus is limiting competition in the marketplace. And this really all goes back to, you know, a law that was that really has not changed, interestingly enough, that was passed in the eighteen in eighteen ninety out of Ohio. So the same place that Rockefeller was working out of, called the Sherman Antitrust Act. And because Ohio was at the crucial point of, again, the steel industry and the railroad industry and the oil industry, the Ohio senators recognized that this is a real big problem for all the small business owners around there. And yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen with this case, but it's pretty fascinating that it's come back up again. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the Sherman Antitrust Act was, you know, more than just a symbolic kind of thing, right? I mean, it really led to this whole wave of of breaking up these these massive industries that existed before. You know, I, we we talk about legislation sometimes as if like it's done when the legislation is passed, but it really like opened up a, a whole new era, sort of of corporate governance that we hadn't had before. Yeah, yeah, I was uh. I was thinking about it because originally when that was passed, they had they really had in mind supporting small businesses. But that legislation has been, as so many pieces of legislation are when they're that old, has been reinterpreted many times. And the latest interpretation actually is, is that in the 1960s and 1970s, there was a judge, his name was Judge Robert Bork, famously. This is a tagline for you Supreme Court junkies. He was also, he was rejected. Um, and so people started saying, you've been borked because he was rejected by the, he was drugged through the mud on all these Senate hearings and then rejected. So he never became a Supreme Court justice, but he did famously reinterpret the Sherman Antitrust Act as the, as the point of it was actually consumer welfare. In other words, like we shouldn't break up large companies unless there is an issue, unless the consumer is not getting what it wants. Yeah. It could be really interesting with this case because many people would argue like Google is giving me what I want. And it's actually in this case, like when we think about technology and like 
you know, massive tech companies, maybe it's better to have really big companies because they can aggregate all this networking information, all everything, right? And so we can have a better product for the consumer. Now, somebody like, you know, a hundred years ago, or lots of other people would argue, no, that's the exact opposite that you should do for this. This is about supporting, this is anti-competitive. This is about supporting small businesses, right? And that, you know, there's inefficiencies in the market, but that's good for business, right? And so, I don't know. I find the whole thing pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the interesting things is that there, there's sort of a jump in logic there, right? If you're saying that a large corporation can, can serve the consumer better, because we don't know <laughs> if the alternative would be better, mm -hmm. right? You know, it's sort of an opportunity cost question. What are we missing out on by letting these, you know, massive corporations continue to dominate? Right. Uh, so I think that would be, you know, at least from where I stand, the, the, the argument against assuming that these major corporations are giving us what we want, because maybe we don't entirely know what we could be getting um, and whether that would be better. Totally. Yeah. Like maybe we, we, we would get a, I don't know, a Google that has some better privacy mechanisms in it. Yeah. Right. Or maybe uh, social media platforms that take a little bit more responsibility for what's said on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, stay tuned, folks, because there's going to be this is going to be in the news for a while. I have a feeling. And of course, in the Bay Area, you know, with Google right at our doorstep, it's something that I'm sure you're having conversations with your your folks about. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe I don't know what you guys talk about over dinner, but <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you guys just play. <laughs> Can I close this week's episode with a very controversial opinion? Uh, sure. Please. Yes, let's hear it. Am I supposed to fight up, fight back? Fight I don't back? think, I don't think Monopoly, I, I don't think Monopoly is a very good board game because this is my main argument. It gets less fun as you go along playing. I think a game should get more and more fun as you reach the end of it. But Monopoly is just this slow, slog towards one person who we all know is already going to win mm -hmm. winning which maybe is you know sort of a metaphor well, for that's industry, yeah but... i feel like we should know this on historically speaking when was monopoly created i certainly know it was created when i was child. yeah so it was initially created as a criticism of capitalism uh -huh. that it was supposed to be like you know how how awful it is that you have to drive everyone else out of business to win and then people didn't really get the sarcasm and were like, this is so much fun. So, uh, so it got bought out by, uh, by Milton Bradley or whoever mm. makes it. There's a, there's a really interesting woman who, who created it. I'd have to do a little bit more research on her to speak confidently about her or her experience. But uh, I do know that it was initially a critique of capitalism and has just horribly backfired. Yeah. Well, I always think of it as, as like a product of the 80s of when everybody was like, yes, make the money. And the other yeah. board game we always played was Hotels, which was also just exactly that about making tons of money on your hotels, on your big fancy hotels. Yeah. I mean, the game of life. Yeah. Life. Oh, yeah. The game of life. The goal is to get into the rich retirement community. <laughs> <laughs> so. What does that say about our value system? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that that'll do it for us this week. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's perfect. All right. We ended exactly where we wanted to end. Thanks, Miss Ratledge. 
Thank you, Mr. Linden. And thank you all for listening. We'll, uh, we'll keep on doing this, I think. It's been fun. Absolutely. I love hanging out with you on Fridays. Thank you.